0: This is the Living History Podcast, broadcasting live across the airwaves. Hello everyone, welcome to Living History. We are back after an extended break, which was slightly longer than I intended, but uh, thanks to COVID and having babies and a few other things, we've uh, we've been off the air for a little while, but I'm really excited that we're back now. And what a great episode to kick off with. I I don't know if if you've seen the movie Top Gun Maverick, which has effectively been almost 30 years in the making since the original Top Gun. We're going to talk about it today. We're going to do a review. I've got with me a a former Navy F 18 pilot who's going to talk all about it. Uh, So I'll introduce him now. It's Vincent Aiello, codenamed Jello. Vincent, thank you for joining us on the podcast.
1: You're welcome, Matt. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: It's uh, it's been exciting that this movie has come out after a long time. I mean, I can't imagine from your perspective what it's what it's like to see the Jets back up on the screen again. I, I should say to our listeners at the outset, there are going to be spoilers in this. I don't, I do want to talk about this movie. I want to compare the movie to the reality. I mean, we should say at the outset, I know it's not a documentary. It's a, it's, it's Hollywood, and it's a, it's a very Hollywood movie. But what I'm keen to do in this discussion is compare the reality of being a fighter pilot to what we what we saw in that movie. So if you haven't seen Top Gun Maverick, uh definitely go out and see it and then come back and uh, and 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 watch this podcast or listen to this podcast or watch this video uh, cuz we're going to be talking about the movie in in some detail. So um Jello, why don't you start by telling us about your career in the uh in the Navy because it's uh just reading your bio it's been pretty exciting some of the adventures you've had in uh in in jets over the years.
1: Yeah, I appreciate that, Matt. So I was taken to an air show as an eight-year-old boy and was just smitten with the idea of the airplanes that I saw and the brave pilots, mostly men at that time, who just exuded this confidence and like they were just from some other planet in a sense because they get to fly, you know? So they were amazing to an eight-year-old. And as I kind of made my way through the young formative years, my stepdad at one point said, hey, what are you going to do when you get out of high school? And I thought, I don't really know. You know, (laughs) He goes, well, you've been interested in military aviation. Why don't you go for it? And that was the beginning of my journey. I give my stepdad credit for kind of launching me on a direction that resulted in me going to university, in my case, in California, UCLA. And I was a math major and I was attending the Reserve Officer Training Corps, ROTC, and after I was done with all that, I was commissioned into the United States Navy, where I was accepted into flight school. In flight school, you have to work real hard to figure out what you're going to fly. And I was lucky enough to get jets. And then you get to figure out what you're going to fly within the jets. And I got F-18s. And then I spent the next several years, my whole career was almost 25 years, flying the F 18 Hornet and Super Hornet. I even had a chance to fly the F-16 Viper. Fighting Falcon, technically. And I retired in 2017 after almost 25 years, 3,800 hours, five deployments, 700 carrier landings, and just really had an amazing career. I was so fortunate.
0: I, um, I've got a lot of friends who are in the Air Force in Australia, and uh, we fly the F-18 here as well. And uh, yeah. it's, the reason that's such a fascinating story for me is every person who wants to become a pilot and joins the Air Force or joins the Navy, in your case... Has these aspirations of flying in the fast jets, and so many of them don't make it. So it's a, it's a, you know, it's a real privilege to be sitting here talking to someone who's been through the the grueling uh, process of actually being accepted and then learning to fly in these fast jets because it's a, it's a rare privilege, isn't it? It's everyone wants to do it, but only the select few make it through.
1: You're so right, Matt. And after I retired, not wanting to just walk away cold turkey from this community in this career that so defined my life. I created a podcast of my own called the fighter pilot podcast. And we have been publishing episodes three times a month for the past, we're in our fifth year now. And I always hear from young people from Australia as well, but all over the world, Hey, I would love to do this, but And the big but, if you will, is that they're so afraid that they might get something else. And every time on our show, we have someone who flew something else. and we have lots of them, helicopter pilots, big airplanes, and and the fighters. I always ask, I say, you know, what did you want to do? Is this what you wanted to do? Did you get what you wanted? And those who will confess to it will say, no, you know, I wanted to be a fighter pilot, but I ended up in the back of an E-2. We had one gentleman who not even a pilot, but in the back of an E-2. And he said, but I found I really loved it. It suited me. So I would tell people, absolutely chase your dreams, but be realistic because it's not just performance. There is a degree of luck or divine intervention, whatever you decide to call it. And wherever you end up, I'd like to think you will blossom where you are planted. So I just, I think, yes, I I was, as I said earlier, very fortunate to have the opportunity to do what I'd hoped to do. And it was amazing. I did have a great career.
0: Well, I, I certainly agree with that. They're wise words and my experience from speaking to people, if, if you're into aviation, if you want to fly, um, you're so right that people, whatever path it takes them in the military, uh, you know, they, they tend to land where they're supposed to be and, and have very fulfilling careers. So, you know, obviously a big shout out to all the people listening to this who are serving in the military because I've never had the honor of serving in the military myself, but it's, uh, you know, it's important work that they're doing. Um, you <laughs> something I thought was interesting was well, you were talking about your inspiration when you were young and seeing jets at air shows and things like that. Um, the original Top Gun movie, I think, has been described as the gr- greatest recruitment tool that you know the the U.S. military has ever put out there. That there 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 are still pilots today who are in the Navy now because they saw that original movie in '86. Uh, at what stage were you? Was did, did that movie come out prior to your career? Were you thinking about being in the Navy at that stage? What what? Did you enjoy that movie and did it it have an influence on what you wanted to do in your career?
1: Oh, yes, across the board. So I was almost (laughs) 16 years old. I was in high school here in the States. And I think my stepdad and I had already had the conversation. At any rate, when the movie came out, it just put everything I was doing into turbocharge, And I said, yes, I absolutely want to continue this path. And so did everyone else, to your point. And so it became very competitive to get in and uh, you had to work real hard for the few coveted slots. And it's funny because that was about five years before I joined the Navy. And then after I retired, here we are five years later and Top Gun Maverick comes out. So the movie uh, universe, if you will, has been a good bookend to my uh, career.
0: <laughs> and what, what did you think of that first movie when it came out? And I think it was 86 that came out, the original Top Gun. Obviously, again, we have to say this. These are not documentaries about life in the Navy right. and you know, being Absolutely. a fighter pilot. But in terms of Hollywood, that was an amazing, you know, sure. that, that amazing. I was well, about the same age and it was extraordinary okay. when that, a little kid out in the bush in Australia with no even concept of what it was like to be in the US Navy <laughs> and flying off aircraft carriers, it, it yeah. sort of blew my mind. So, so I had, you know, what did you think of that original movie?
1: Well, I'll, I'll answer your question with a question. How much credit do you give yourself, Matt, when you were 15 years old? I mean, good grief. I didn't really care about a whole lot. <laughs> I was thinking, <laughs> I maybe was starting to think about girls by then. I don't know. But I was thinking about having fun and whatever else I was doing. And that movie came along and it was exciting. I mean, right? It's got the full normal arc of a hero and the villain and the uh you know the drama and all the different things and so it was a great and compelling story and and the funny thing is right i changed but it didn't and so as i continued through my career and i would occasionally watch it i thought huh Never caught that before, but that's really wrong (laughs) or that's kind (laughs) of that's kind of messed up. And then, of course, as you know, well, right, society changed. I'm like, ooh, you can't really say that anymore. (laughs) So it it has it has aged gracefully, but it's also a snapshot in time of the U.S. Navy and the society in the mid 80s. And so it's fun. And I don't think that we should necessarily go back and say, oh, well, we should have said these things back then because that's how culture was. And so it, it was a fun movie and I've enjoyed it for the last 36 years.
0: Well, one thing I did want to talk about before we get into the new movie is the call sign. So your call sign is Jello. Um, I noted in the original Top Gun that they were all called Viper and Jester and Maverick. <laughs> they all had these really sharp, cool names. Yeah. And I, I, I do want to be uh, delicate when I say this, but my experience of talking to, to Navy pilots with call signs is that they often are not, you know, oh, I, yes. cutting. Is, is that actually part of the culture? The, the, you know, t- talk to us a little bit about the allocation of call signs.
1: Well, I knew call signs were such an interesting thing for those who haven't lived a life that it was our second episode on the Fighter Pilot Podcast. And so how do you get them? Where do they come from? What do they mean? And there's, of course, as many stories as there are call signs. But that's just something fun that we use to call each other instead of our real names, Joe or whatever, right? If, if it's Jello, it's got this interesting, just fun thing about it. But there's usually some not in my case. In my case, it just rhymes with I yellow. Uh, and other people who have other last names will have call signs. Like if your last name is wise or strong, your call sign is probably not so, not so wise, not so strong. <laughs> because it's just one of these things that it, it's a way to have some fun, but also keep it real in a sense, because we do very serious stuff. And there's an element of a call sign that somewhat depersonalizes it, right? So when they're talking about Jello and what I did in a, in a flight, in the debrief, where debriefs can be very difficult because let's face it, we're not going to just gloss over mistakes or anything else. We're going to say what went wrong. But when they call me jello, it's, it's me as a fighter pilot, not me as a human being. So it's a little less threatening. And it's also something that the junior pilot can say to the senior pilot if they are flying together and it needs to be said. So you don't want to get hung up on, oh, that's Admiral Smith. It's no, Hey, you know, whatever your call sign is uh, jester break, right? You know, I'm not going to worry about the fact that you're an admiral right now. So they're fun, and they can be demeaning, <laughs> and they can have uh, interesting and, and frankly, very, unpolitically correct meanings in some cases. But there's also an upside to call signs, and, and it's just a fun element of what we do in military aviation.
0: How would you have felt on day one at Top Gun if you were introduced to someone whose call sign was Maverick? Would that have, <laughs> would that have, <laughs> would that have yeah, given you
1: pause? <laughs> Well, at 15, I just thought that's what you call people. And then at 25, I realized, okay, yeah, that character is not very realistic. But as you've correctly stated, and I do on my podcast as well, it is a movie, and it's got to be fun. And he's the hero, and he has to have an ism of some sort. And in this case, he just does what he wants to do. (laughs)
0: well let's get into the uh to top gun maverick which is the reason that we're here so what i wanted to start with and again i do want to break it down a little bit and i do want to focus as i said not criticize the movie because i I have to say at the outset i thought it was great as a hollywood adventure i thought it was fantastic um so i do want to uh, but what i do want to do is compare to reality so we can get some idea of what life in in the navy flying jets is actually like um well my first question to you did you enjoy the movie
1: I did and I'll tell you I've seen it three times as we record this now at the end of May, and I've enjoyed it a little more each time. I thought maybe by the third time I could get through it without shedding a tear, but I didn't I still I still did um, and The first time I watched it, I was so built up for these years of waiting through COVID. And even before that, knowing it was coming and I was looking for people. I have friends that are in the movie and I was thinking about, I've got to make notes because we're going to be talking about this on my podcast. And so I just didn't enjoy it because I didn't allow myself to enjoy it. I was too busy thinking about everything I was seeing And so the second time I enjoyed it more and then the third time was actually the time that I was the least involved with anything else I was doing. I was there at the behest of someone else and and then answered some questions afterwards. And I just, I like the fact that it has redemption and closure and romance and danger and all these different human emotions that we live day in and day out. And also it reflected, I thought, very well the modern military force structure, and I presume this this way in Australia too, but certainly here in the US, where we have men and women, black and white, different races, different genders, and it doesn't matter anymore. They didn't make a big deal about who the people were or what they looked like, just what they could do. And I loved that part because I try to say that all the time on my show. Look, if you show up and you say, hey, I deserve to be here because I'm this or that, or I'm not this or that, then you're wrong let's show me what you can do get in the airplane and perform don't hide behind who or what you are and so i really like that aspect of the movie too matt
0: well it's a great leveler isn't it a military career is certainly a uh you know it defines exactly what you're saying that it's it's you know you're, you're judged based on your ability to perform your ability to support the people around you um so yeah i've seen that as well in the australian military with uh you know a lot of my friends that are serving it is the great it is the great leveler uh, and it just comes down to what you can do, uh, you know, when cold. And, and before
1: we move on, though, I think it's worth saying, although we shouldn't spend too much time on it, that certain classes, at least in America, are more likely to have opportunities that might prepare them for things versus other classes that might be locked in inner city and not have the ability to do certain things. So, I, look, I I wish the world was different than it is. I recognize where we are, but I also think it's great that we're making such progress. And certainly in the military today, it seems to me like it's it's very Yes, leveling is a good way to put it.
0: Yeah, and I, I think Hollywood is at the forefront of that. I mean, they, they mm-hmm. sometimes get criticised for it that they say, okay, every time there's a group of people, you know, there's going to be an African American, there's going to be a female, there's going to be a you know a, a gay person, you know. But I think, as we say, these are not documentaries. These are not you know these the, it's entertainment. It's it's portraying a version of life that I think hopefully you know inspires and adds hope and you know That's paints right. a picture of how we want to be. So I you know I. I, I think that Hollywood is actually doing a great job being at the forefront of that. And we saw that in this movie. It was a good eclectic bunch of of, uh, of people. The one thing yeah. you mentioned there that I thought was interesting, the one thing I noted was you mentioned the word danger and probably the only criticism I would have of this movie, and absolutely feel free to correct me if I've got this wrong. I thought they were a little bit gun-shy in the movie about showing the risk of being effectively in combat. You know, that it seemed a little bit, You know, I mean, no one died, no one was injured. It seemed a little bit video gamey in some aspects that a plane could just fly along and get hit by a Sam and the pilot would just bail out and then he'd dust himself off and jump in the next aircraft and off he'd go again. Um, I mean, at least in the first one, (laughs) yeah, yeah, exactly. Spoiler (laughs) alert, yeah. Yeah. Um, at least in the first one, um, even though it was a bit of a cliche, there still was a death. You know, it showed that this was dangerous, that that, that if things went wrong, people could get hurt, people could die. Was there a feel from your experience? Was there a feeling of that that uh, you know that the danger? It, it seemed the movie was a little bit scared to to talk about the dangers of going off and, and fighting in combat. Did you did you have that that perspective?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point, Matt. Yeah, as much as I've thought about this movie in the last several weeks and been talking about it on my own show and other shows, I I hadn't considered that until just now. And I and I get your point. I guess to me, I having lived it, I know that it's so well baked in to what we do. And you do see an ejection with a bird strike out over the desert, which again, they had to add a bit of uh, drama, I think into the middle. It's not generally too many birds uh, out over the desert, but um, I I think they tried to depict that as well as in the training. Remember when they're flying along and, Oh, I'm going too fast. And they hit the notional wall, which would have been a crash of course, or they go too high and would have been shot by a surface air missile. So yeah, I, I guess, they tried to depict it but they didn't show it if you get yeah, what i'm they, saying they, like they was, showed yeah, it when goose died
0: yeah they felt it felt to me like they were really building it up during the training yeah. you know the, the the risk of death here you know and you know tom cruise was saying the whole time that you know people aren't going to come home from this one and you know my job is to try and get as many of them as home as i possibly can yeah and i was watching it with my 15 year old son and i said to him at about this stage i said if if someone doesn't die in this movie I think they've really missed an opportunity with the drama of the movie I'm talking about. I'm talking about the dramatic arc here. They're really building this up what a dangerous mission it is. And I hope they don't do what Hollywood often does these days and gets a bit timid to go, oh, we we need to have that happy ending. And I felt they did that a little bit in some respect.
1: Well, because I think the overarching arc of the story was the redemption Mm. between Maverick and Rooster. Uh, And so if you all of a sudden also have someone die, I feel like it would dilute the point they were trying to make there where, you know, the whole talk to me goose. And now he's got a chance to right the wrong that he did because he had promised his uh, mom who had then since passed away again, spoiler alerts, of course. (laughs) But uh, you know, it's, I I, I think they probably made the choice of, Hey, yeah, we we might be missing something if we don't include this, but we've got to have this redemption between these two characters. And and in the end, you know, he's helping him change the spark plugs on his Mustang. So clearly they're, (laughs) they're, uh, they're okay.
0: And it's probably a conversation for my other podcast, you know, movies and how we make them. Or, you know, we're probably delving a little bit too uh, much into
1: uh, you know, so. Hollywood, Hollywood so. creation. But, but, but I, hey, I, thought right, that, I, I thought it was interesting. Yeah, it, it's on our minds right now. So I think That's it's right. okay to talk exactly. about because it does exactly. do, I think, the movie itself a very good job of showcasing what the F.A. 18 Super Hornet community can do. And in that regard, I bet it's not that different than your own communities down under and so i I feel like the the men and women who do it the risks the missions uh and of course they have to take some liberties along the way but it was a fun movie
0: um i know that in australia everyone was very excited when they announced that it was going to be the f-18 that they were going to uh to be depicting (laughs) because we're in the same situation as uh, the states where the f-35 is the you know the sexy new plane on the runway and so i think everyone was pretty happy to see the venerable f-18 we've i mean we've had a long relationship; it's been our primary fighter for so long now. We've only just recla- retired the classic Hornets, and now it's the Super Hornets and the F thirty five on the front line. So I think everyone was pretty excited. Was that a surprise to you when they when they announced they were going to be depicting the F eighteen as the as the key plane?
1: Um, no, because a couple of reasons. Number one, everything about the F thirty five is super classified. So you can put someone in the back seat of an F eighteen, and as long as you put certain displays up or keep certain displays displays from coming up, you can catch a ride and and not see anything classified. I'd never flew the F-35, but from what I understand, number one, there's no second seat to put the person in. But number two, just about everything about the mission is uh, very high classification levels. Also, the cost per flight hour of F-35 is insanely high, but also Paramount wanted real flying. And real actors in the back seats, which they tried in the 1986 Top Gun, and they did all get flights, I'm told, but they didn't use any of the footage because it was useless, so in this case, they wanted people in back seats, making it look like they're in front seats. And the F-18 was the most adaptable aircraft for that. But I, f- I found it a little interesting that they just sort of hand waved the F-35. Oh, we've got this GPS jamming. So this $100 million airplane is useless. And I I wonder what the company who makes that aircraft is thinking about that hand wave.
0: <laughs> did, did you think the actors did a, a good job in those flight scenes? Because I don't know, I, I assume in your career, you you have been on flights with untrained co-pilot you know people in the in the in the plane and uh i, I can imagine that a civilian in a in a, a fast moving jet uh would, would would not do a great job which is probably why they couldn't use any of that footage the first time yeah, right. um, yeah. i thought the actors did a pretty good job though
1: uh, they did perspective I, well my perspective is there are some other documentary style short videos on youtube i've seen floating around about the regimen that tom cruise put them through So he took them flying in different aircraft. He's an accomplished pilot himself. So they started in propeller airplanes and then moved to little jets and then the big jets. And so when they jumped in the backseat of an F-18, it was not for the first time in a small airplane. They had been working up towards it. And so I thought it was very convincing. Um, There is one scene, I think it's in the final battle scene where Rooster is flying over the snow-covered mountain and he kind of flies out of his seat. And I, I commented on one of my breakdown analysis videos on my YouTube channel that it reflected to me that that particular person in that particular airplane was not anchored to the flight controls, he was along for the ride. And that's why his body flew <laughs> the way it did uh, because his lap belt straps probably were not as tight as they could be versus when you're the one doing it. You don't, you don't only know it's coming, but you're also holding to the stick and throttles. And so, except for that one, which they loved so much, they kept it in, I'm told, but everything else, yeah, they're out there and they've not only have to act Matt, but they had to operate the equipment I'm told. So the kudos to them.
0: Yeah, they—it it, it, certainly—they didn't do it in half measures. This project, you could tell through the whole thing that it had been a long time coming. There was obviously a lot of pressure to get it right and to produce a good film, and they didn't do anything by half measures. So it was pretty impressive the work that the uh, the actors did. What about the premise of the whole, you know, the whole movie—the the, the idea that Maverick had been a test pilot and he'd, he'd been away from Top Gun for twenty five years, and now he was coming back. I mean, he was still only a captain. He was a lieutenant last time we saw him. Now he's still only a captain. Uh, did any of that, was that just Hollywood, a, a good story arc to bring him back or, or, or could that have been a realistic career, you know, arc for, for Maverick?
1: Well, we can nitpick for hours. I mean, Clearly, they have to take some liberties with the story. And so in the U.S. Navy, if you get to 30 years and you don't promote above captain, they're going to force you out. So he would have been, I presume, out unless he was in some sort of specialty test pilot type community. Um, so, you know, it look, it just took longer than they thought. I believe they started working on this maybe as much as a decade or more ago, but they were really working on, let's get the technology right so we can film actual in-flight footage and let's get the story. And they manipulated that, I think, over and over. And and, and you got to make trade-offs. I mean, there are trade-offs in everything in life, right? A, a family car that you might drive with your newborn is different than if someone is single and they want a sports car. And so each one of those has trade-offs, the performance or the, the capacity. And so for the movie, it's the same thing. Hey, we need him obviously he's the main character. Oh, by the way, we need, uh, Val Kilmer and Val Kilmer is suffering from some health challenges. And so let's write that into the story and let's have the redemption between those two as a bit of a fan service to the first movie, but also then we can, we can send that character to pasture in a sense. Um, so I, yeah, everything was, I think, very deliberate. I have no doubt that they thought through this over and over and, and made, Compromises where they had to and in the end I, I still think it's a good product
0: and they um, I think it's important for me to say as well is that obviously there's they're not dumb when they make this movie it's not that you know when someone says oh you, you know you might have got that slightly wrong they, they obviously have the best advisors and the most talented people who know the story and they are making deliberate decisions to for a good story yeah. so yeah I, yeah I do want to agree with you on that that obviously we're talking about a good story here and it was a great story um, what about the mission is that something? And again, I'm I'm not, I don't want to talk about this in terms of what did the movie get right and wrong. I just want to talk about that type of mission that was depicted. In your experience, Mm -hmm. is that, is that the sort of thing that F-18s would be called on to be doing uh, in combat?
1: Well, I mean, certainly F-18s are capable of air-to-air and air-to-surface missions. So a low level ingress to a pop attack, dropping bombs on a point target, and then egressing out and defending against surface air missiles are things I did even before I went to Top Gun. Maybe not quite with the proficiency that would be needed on that flight, but that's the thing about being a fighter pilot is you're always learning. And that was one of the lines of bothered me in the movie is when they're in the officers club and one of the young lieutenants says, we're all the best there is. Who are they going to find to train us? I just cringed at that one. It's like, come on. Even at the end of my career with 3,800 hours in the F-18, I always learned something. There was always someone better than me. And so uh, I think, I think the premise of hey, we've got some country that's unnamed, but is not friendly. And I think it was, didn't they say the UN or NATO? I forget what. But anyway, somebody is authorizing us to essentially declare war in a sense by attacking uh, this to make sure they don't have enriched uranium. And so we're going to penetrate their airspace and attack something that's an asset to them. And then if we have to, we'll get in a fist to cuffs with the defense that they have up. And then we'll make our way back and to the hero's welcome, uh, right? That's what you would expect. I mean, yeah, not not flawless, but plausible certainly. And
0: you mentioned the group that they assembled—you know, the best of the best of the Top Gun graduating classes. Uh, I, I thought it was interesting this this dynamic that the guy who'd been away for, you know, decades came back and still had a lot to teach them. Um, to me, um, I thought it was almost reversed a little bit that the you'd, you'd think that the recent graduates of Top Gun would know absolutely everything that there is to know. About flight. Was that was that something that that uh, that I that I have on the mark in that perception?
1: You absolutely do, Matt. And I'll tell you this: so we rented uh, the Fighter Pilot Podcast at an entire theater on Friday night when it opened here in the states on the twenty seventh. And I invited past guests and family and friends, and we all watched it together. Had a good time, but it, I had planned ahead of time. I have three friends who are former top gun instructors, as am I, and I said, "Look, we're gonna have a panel. We'll get some director's chairs, lights, and microphones, and we're gonna record it." right afterwards now two of the gentlemen are retired but one is still a navy captain and he's an air wing commander and so i asked him i said grant would you expect that they might call you to go train the young people in your air wing or might you expect to learn something for your lieutenants knowing full well? And he answered the way I expected him to, which is, Oh gosh, I'm so busy with everything else as a leader and, and air wing commander. I'm not near as up to speed on all the latest tactics and procedures as the young lieutenants are. And he and I were young, young lieutenants. Uh, once I was actually one rank ahead of him for a while, but at any rate, um, so no, generally speaking, the people that they assembled on that dream team in the movie would be probably about the best tacticians and, an F-18 you could ever possibly expect. And one of the contentions, one of the bones of contention I have with the movie is they all showed up and they all seemed just a little too hapless to me. Like, oh wait, wait, we're going to do dog fighting. Oh, what's that? Oh, I'm not very good at it. Wait, we're going to do low level. Those are all things, a top gun graduate who's as a training officer in the fleet, let's say, they should be pretty darn good at all that and be kicking the old man's butt.
0: that's up to 25 percent off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. and what about the dynamic of the uh, you know the, the group how did that did that ring true did in your experience is there always the cocky guy and the you know the the nerdy but proficient technical guy and was that was that a display that you that you saw in your career of, of, of the personalities in a, in a group like that
1: I don't think I've ever seen anyone quite as arrogant as the hangman character, maybe with the exception of Iceman when I watched him on the movies uh, way back. Um, but I'll tell you this, Matt. It's interesting. Confidence. It, let's say there's a confidence scale of one to 10, right? And let's say if you go to 11, you're, you're cocky. Let's say if you're a one or zero, you're just like dangerous kind of thing. I actually wrote a blog about this on my website once. I would, I would submit it's actually worse to be too low on the scale than too high. Because you have to have confidence. People need to believe in you. People need to follow you and listen to you in combat, even if you're a wingman, because everyone has a role to play when you are one of two or three or four aircraft. If you're cocky, it's difficult, but it's better than being so just unsure of your own skill and and nervous and anxious that nobody can trust you to do what needs to be done. Now, the fact that people take it too far, and uh, I am good, or whatever Hangman says, yeah, w- I've known some people sort of like that, never quite as bad as that. But I like what the movie did because even before the end, when they're when they're leaving, he, he looks at the guy who got the spot that he thought he should have had, and he just kind of gives him these, you know, a head nod. He says, "Give him hell," and I thought that's good. You know, that that shows, I think, while we are all imperfect people in the fighter community, just like we all are as human beings anyway, that we are capable of at least recognizing, okay, well, in this case, this is what's needed of me. And, and so... By the time the guy told to give him hell comes back, you know it's it's not a bro hug per se, but it's 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 a handshake and it's understanding and it's closure and it was good. So I, I like that part. I don't suddenly know if I answered your question. I feel like, but
0: uh. no, no, you did. You answered it very very okay. well. Um, you know, again, it's this uh, this comparison between the the real life and the uh, yeah. and what we're seeing on the big screen. I thought some of those training sequences were probably the most exciting part of the movie. Um, and again, I know it was. I know the the mission was probably a little bit too difficult and a little bit too overdone in terms of exactly what they had to do. Um, but uh, just levels of realism in that training, you know, what they went through, how they prepared for that mission—did that ring true, or was that uh, was that pure Hollywood?
1: No, that definitely does. Because anytime you're working towards something and probably in life in general, but certainly in military aviation is is you crawl, walk, run, right? Or blocking and tackling first, whatever example expression you want to use. But you you start with the basics and then you work up to whatever it is that you need to do and you build proficiency along the way. And so for them to start off with some basic dogfighting and then low level tactics and bombing and then surface to air counter tactics. Yeah, that's all very realistic.
0: And was the, the way the F-18 was used, was that, uh, was that realistic to you, the technology and the, the way they were flying it and what they were asking it to do?
1: Apart from flying through the bridge abutments, uh, which was, <laughs> that, that looked a little too close to me. But, I mean, look, a lot of it is real flying. And, of course, they have to use some imagery uh, effects to show one breaking up from being hit by a missile or from the bird. But, uh, it, I mean, yeah, it's, it, it looked real because it was real, I would say. <laughs>
0: And um, I, I think the uh, the other thing that I've heard, and I heard this on your podcast as well, is that obviously to make it work on the big screen, the distances have to be much closer than they would be in reality. Um, but gee, it made for some pretty uh, exciting flight sequences, didn't it?
1: It really did. And unlike the 1986 Top Gun, where they had to have the F-14 and the F-5s, uh, ostensibly MiG-28s, passing by each other in a scene in the modern movie, they were able to record two different scenes and then overlay them to make it look like it was one scene where, for example, the two are flying in the first BFM engagement and then Maverick comes shooting up between the two of them. So that's just two separate st- scenes stitched together but then there's others where you see them in lead trail chasing each other through the canyons or doing some sort of dog fighting and yes they're out there flying next to camera jets and doing their best to stay as close as possible because that's what the audience wants to see to feel connected to the situation
0: I should ask you outright how would you have gone flying that uh, that canyon run that uh, that we saw Maverick do in the film
1: uh, well, probably no different than what he did. I, 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 do you mean like when he stole the airplane? I mean, uh, right yeah, then and exactly. there, you're already in a bit of trouble, of course.
0: Uh,
1: <laughs> and the antagonist does a good job of, hey, "You just gave me everything I need to court martial." Yeah, I thought that was a good line. Um, but you know, the, the the scene where the jet is flying super low over the desert and it's kicking up a little bit of the dirt. When I first saw that, it was like the very opening scene, if you recall, in the first trailer they released years ago. And the moment I looked at that, I said, that's a blue angel pilot. It has to be because we don't fly that low, except right before you take off or land Uh, right after you take off, I should say right before you land. Uh, But, but the blue angels, when they do their performance, there's one pass called the sneak pass where they, they, they lure you into watching the diamond. Oh, look how nice that is. And meanwhile, the solos come ripping in to demonstrate just how stealthy an aircraft can be from the sound point of view when it's going fast. And so sure enough, um, I forget his last name. I think maybe Frank is his first name. But anyway, they, they brought back a, a Blue Angel pilot and they said, hey, you're going to go down and do your sneak pass over the desert. We're going to film you. And, and that's that compelling scene. And so, you know, otherwise for me as a normal fleet pilot, 200 feet was the lowest you were permitted to fly. But flying through canyons, doing pop attacks, dropping LGBs. Yeah, those are all real things that I did throughout my career.
0: I, I should say as an aside, I, I love that about the U.S. military that our, uh, you know, aerobatic uh, flying wing use turboprop trainers and you guys, the Blue Angels, are using F-18s, which are our, you know, frontline fighters. I think it's <laughs> it's a great <laughs> nod to the U.S. military and just how you guys get things done. Um, let's move on to the mission itself, uh, the, the you know, the exciting scenes of flying off carriers and and the, uh, you know, the, the um, and again, we know the mission is, is, is a Hollywood story, but um, well, let me ask you this way, rather than just sitting here saying, what, what did, what did they get? What was the most realistic part of that mission from your perspective? And what was the part that was the, the least realistic?
1: So we've been posting a lot on social media and everything with our podcast. And now twice just today alone, I believe, Matt, someone said to me, why wasn't the EA 18G growler in the movie? And why weren't they suppressing those threats? And so, of course, one thing I have to do is always be careful of the classified information that I used to know, which is thankfully starting to seep out now five years later. But at any rate, there are certain things that I still have to be careful of. But my response to them is, well, there's a difference between suppression and surprise. And so I like the fact that they kept it fairly Basic, hey, you four are going to go in below radar in this canyon, a little reminiscent, frankly, of Star Wars and a few other movies are all tied into yeah, this movie. I thought that myself.
0: It didn't seem very Star Wars, did <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah,
1: and then Behind Enemy Lines is later and then Firefox and et cetera, et cetera. But anyway, any rate, um, I thought that part was very accurate. And so I've responded to people on social media, well, there, there's a difference. And if you suppress surface-to-air threats, now all those operators of those threats uh, missiles are saying, Ooh, what's going on here? And so now they're more heightened and, and alerted. Um, I like the fact that they included the E2 Hawkeye because that was very realistic. In fact, the female uh, actor there is not an actor at all. It's it's the advisor they brought down and they said, she does such a good job. Just let her do it. And so that was very realistic. And the in-flight scenes of the Hawkeye were very cool. Um, and then the attack itself, I, I, I have some issue with the idea of I'm going to overstress the aircraft in order to recover. Um, certainly F-18s can be overstressed, but once you, once you, do that and you maintain that high level of G. Well, you're either going to do a loop, right? Because G is acceleration to the inside of a turn. So you're just going to keep turning as if in a loop. Or at some point as you're going up the hillside, then you can relax and just go up that mountainside. Uh, and then once you get to the top of that, look, we just spent all this time trying to get in here sneakily. Why are we just now suddenly going to accept going above their radar coverage? Why not when we get out of that bowl? he does talk about, oh, we'll be out of energy. Well, but you're never too out of energy to roll and pull back towards the ground and go back low again and make it difficult for those surface air missiles. And so I kind of felt like they gave up. But when they did give up, I really love the scene there because it, it pans back, right? It shows you the entire scene and it just looks like pandemonium. You hear everybody yelling, you see missiles going everywhere, and then they play this little soft music that you don't really listen to, but you feel. And you just sense, because... Maverick had already said goodbye to Hondo and we know since it's the second movie and he's older that, Hmm, what are they going to do here? Are they going to take him out? And so you have this foreboding, Oh no, it's real. We're going to lose our, you know, our character from 40 years almost. Uh, and so I thought they played that scene emotionally very well, but I just kind of wished they'd all just kind of gone back down low and, and tried to survive under the radar.
0: What about the specifics of, um, you know, a couple of times planes got shot down and, it seemed like in the first one that if an American missile hit an enemy plane, the plane exploded in a million pieces. But if a you know if a, a missile hit a, an American plane, that maybe just a wing came off and you are able to bail out. Uh, what just what about that aspect of it? I mean, like the, the, in your training, this might be a really dumb non-military question, but in your training, okay. the concept that you can walk away from being shot down by a missile is that is that something that is discussed? Is that I mean, how how did that sit with you?
1: I, I wouldn't say it was a part of any sort of formal training. That seems like something you would get either from uh, the occasional old timer brief. That, you know, if somebody comes back and says, "Hey, I was in a such and such mission in Vietnam, and this is what happened," or whatever the case might be. You know, ready room stories, magazine articles, all those are ways we learn uh, apart from just formal education. And so, I mean, when a missile strikes an aircraft, it could very well kill the pilot. It could just. uh, destroy the airplane and the pilot would be able to eject. And certainly that decision is going to be made by the creative directors of the movie. Hey, do we need this guy to survive or not? And so if it's a no name character, it might be very easy to kill them. If it's a character we need to kill off because we need the hero to be, uh, you know, in a situation where it's the third act slump, then okay, then we need to uh, take care of that. And, And so the nice thing about a movie compared to reality is I can, I can, work it in opposite right hey this is the outcome i need so let's have a missile hit or let's have a mid-air collision or a bird strike or whatever versus oh wow this just happened and now this is how my life looks or doesn't as a case may be so it's all part of the creative process i believe
0: yeah it's interweaving drama of course with sure. the whole story well that's a bit i really want to get to the, the you know and again massive spoiler but everyone by now should have been uh, should have already seen the movie they wanted to bring back the f14 they they, they really had to for nostalgia reasons how realistic was it that there would be an F-14 parked? It's a genuine question. I actually don't know the answer. There would be an F-14 parked fueled with armaments on it, ready to go at that enemy base that they could jump into and take off.
1: Well, they never bother to say what country it is. And frankly, knowing that I do, that there's only one country left in the world flying F-14s and we're not particularly friendly with them, sat fine for me. But I wondered for the folks who don't really follow maybe military situations around the world, wait, the F-14 was his airplane in the first one. Why is it suddenly an enemy airplane? I, I thought one maybe there could be some confusion there. But what we don't know, Matt, is the situation of this threat country. Do they know strikes are possible? Are they already at conflict with a neighbor? Are they thinking the Americans are coming to blow up their new toy? So it could be fueled, loaded, and ready in a shelter as depicted and just waiting for alert, but then all these cruise missiles come in and wreak havoc on our base. And so now it's just pandemonium allowing two guys to sneak in. And again, spoiler alert. Uh, but um, yeah, I I, I I was okay with that. Of course, I saw that coming. I mean, as soon as, as, soon as Maverick is shot down and then so is Rooster, I said, okay, well, now I know the rest of the story because <laughs> we see it in the preview, in the trailer. And so- I thought they'd do a good job with it. And and the footage was very convincing. I know darn well they did not get an F-14 from our former friends to fly in the movie. So they had to do it with surrogate aircraft.
0: They um I think they did that really well. You touch on a really good point there, Jello, that they did that really well. That there, there was a line between, you know, you could cross a line and go, okay, that's just ludicrous that, you know, this was never gonna happen. I think they nudged that line throughout the whole movie without really going across it in any way. I mean, we're having this conversation now. You're an ex fighter pilot. You're sitting there saying, Yeah, I enjoyed the movie. I'm okay with that. You know, it was a little bit of a stretch, but I'm okay with it. I think they trod that line very, very well so that you get this action packed blockbuster that does tell a great story, um, you know, without, uh, you know, without getting into the realms of of the absolutely ludicrous.
1: Well, and I'll tell you, Matt, the things that I found ludicrous probably nobody else cares about because, again, it's part of a, a of the recipe of a story. But the fact that um, John Hamm's character—I guess he calls himself the Air Boss—I don't even remember his character name—but he's the antagonist, right? And the antagonist has a sidekick, just like Maverick has a sidekick, and those two characters were based on real billets here in the United States. One of them is right here in San Diego, not far from where I'm sitting, actually, and the other is up in Fallon. And yet these two high ranking admiral gentlemen have nothing. Better to do than to just sit around and be a thorn in Maverick's side. So I
0: wandered of down the, to the beach when he's pl- when they're playing football. Yeah, exactly. What are you doing down here at the beach? What are you and doing down here at the beach? <laughs> and then they're
1: on the carrier, half a world away when, when they go. But 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 you need that consistency in the story arc, right? You can't just have some new admiral on the carrier suddenly. And so I I, I understand, but for me, it's just a head slapper like, okay, I mean, I guess that's what that's what the audience needs to see is the same antagonist. Us the whole time but that part of it just kind of like nah, that's not how it works the air boss is a really super busy person
0: i watched um Saving Private Ryan many years ago with a bunch mm. of absolute World War II experts, you know, and I'm no offense to my friends out there, but nerds on things. And they, for them, various aspects of the, of the movie were spoiled by, oh, the German hasn't got the front side on that MG 42 correctly positioned. And <laughs> the, the nitpicking details. Are you able to separate? Cause there must be thousands of those in a movie like this for you. Are you able to separate yourself from those, those details to just enjoy the movie?
1: Uh, probably no. I notice them. But I still try to make myself enjoy the movie. So here's here's an example, the the fire. So uh, Rooster hits a bird, right? So she shuts off the left engine first. That was all fine. And then she quote unquote extinguishes it. Well, then the right engine catches on fire and she tries to extinguish it. Well, unfortunately, you're done when you extinguish the first engine. You, you can't extinguish both. So little details like that. Plus, then the air to air display is actually like a hybrid of an air to ground radar display in the F eighteen. But I guess there was some sort of rules about why they needed to, even though you can find all those on the digital combat simulator games and everything else that exists out there. Um, so they, they had to, I think, purposely change some things. And, and then there's little details. And, and the Navy's advisor to Paramount is a friend of mine. He's been on the show, and he's coming back again on June 15th to really spill his guts about everything that uh, happened when the filming. All good stuff, though. He's not, he's not obviously uh, burying any skeletons or anything. But um, he you know when i asked him I, I said look what battles did you pick he's like hey you know you have to choose your battles because there's a storyline and there's some things that are already built i.e filmed or made or whatever so for example he's talking about ribbons and medals the uniforms right that the officers were wearing apparently someone saw a trailer and was complaining on social media about something john ham's character was wearing and so when my friend was brought on to be the advisor he said hey here's what he needs to wear and they said no, we can't change it we've already filmed some of it And so that's just one of those things you have to deal with. And so, right. I mean, here we are talking about a movie for how long have we been going? (laughs) 43 minutes. We're talking about it because people find it interesting and they want to know more and go deeper. And that's a way that we experience humanity and and live is let's, let's enjoy something and go deeper on it. Uh, But for everyone else, they're like, Hey, it's just a movie. Just enjoy it. And don't sweat the little details. But for those of us who've lived the life, it's hard not to.
0: Yeah, I, I certainly agree with that. And I, I, I you know, it, it probably harks back to what we said at the top of the interview about the original Top Gun being such a good recruitment tool. Because I remember yeah. being a teenager and playing video games about World War II. And and I will say legitimately and unapologetically that that those are some of the things that got me interested in military history. You know, I would play a a game about the invasion of Normandy, and then I'd want to go and learn more about that chapter of history. I know everyone is not the same. I know some of us are a bit more uh, obsessive about these things than other people. Um, But I think that does play a role. It it is more, you know, it it is, you can just sit down and enjoy it and enjoy the entertainment. But it does play a role, and it does encourage some people to go out and learn more. And uh, you know, and I think I think movies like this, and like all the great military movies we've seen over the over the decades, do play a very important role in a in at the very least an understanding to some extent about what people in your position, you know, go through when they put their their, their lives on the line. So I think I, I think in that respect, movies like this one, even though it is just a bit of fun at the end of the day, there is an important um, underlying role there, and that's that's yeah. why we're talking about it. So I, I well, think but- they did very well with that.
1: And it's also part of the human experience, right, Matt? I mean, we're lucky you and I to live in relatively free societies where we can find things that we enjoy, whether it's history in your case or golf or fly fishing or military aviation or whatever, cooking. I mean, right? Whatever your interest is, for the most part, you can pursue that. And there are, by the way, classes and and podcasts and videos and different things a lot like this, where if that's what you're interested in, hey, come here and you can learn more about it. And that's fulfilling. So- I'm I'm glad to be a part of it.
0: Yeah, I think I think they did really well. Well, let's let's sum up. What are you What are your final thoughts about the movie? Obviously, you give it a, a recommendation that people see it uh, as an ex uh, ex Navy fighter pilot. What What are your thoughts about where uh, where Top Gun Maverick sits?
1: Well, I'll say that I've had many people reach out in the last few days who I, some don't keep in good contact with, as others, and who just want, said. I just watched it and I just feel like I need to talk to you because like they know me and like, you know how it is when you walk out of a movie, you're caught up in that, that that's like all that matters to you for a little while. It goes away after a while, like a buzz, but, but like people just would reach out to me and say, I feel so much closer to what you did for so long. And I feel like I understand it better. And ultimately that's what the movie does, right? a, A movie should suspend reality, take us to a place where we can forget about our petty problems that we all have. And just put us in a state where we can go through that journey of whatever it is in the story, the the trials and tribulations, and then ultimately the justification, if you will, or redemption at the end, and just just to be taken on that journey. And that's just a fun thing to do. And so I thought they did very good job of depicting naval aviation in a manner that is wholesome and true to the flying because the flying was true. They took some liberties here and there to make it compelling. I'm okay with that. And ultimately, it just reminds me that what I did was special. And I'm thankful for that every day, just like I'm thankful to live in a free society or to have my health or a family or enough food in the refrigerator. And so for me, it's just one more way to say, you know, as much as we as a society get caught up in I'm going to get on my soap horse here for a second, uh, soapbox rather, um, caught up in so much minutiae and details and division and all this other stuff is maybe here's something we can all just feel good about for two hours and 11 minutes and forget about all that other junk for a while. And also feel good that there are people out there right now on the seven seas doing this, and not just in American uniforms and Australian and British and all the militaries of the, of the world. And so there are people that are risking their lives and and giving up their freedoms to be out on these military ships. And, and um, yeah, I just, I just think it's just a great way to be distracted for a while in a way that feels good and afterwards. Okay, fine. Let's get back to the important things, but for right now, sure. This is a movie. It feels good. And it's reflective of what people are actually doing and we should be aware of that.
0: Yeah. Very well said. Just the last thing before I let you go, um, <clears throat> did you miss it after watching this? Did you, did you uh, want to be back in that cockpit and, and launching off a carrier and then going, taking part in these missions? Uh,
1: you know, I'll tell you this, Matt, the interesting thing is the thing I missed the most, as much fun as flying was after so many years and so many thousands of hours, I had done, as I like to say, almost everything there is to do. The only two things I didn't do in an F-18 is shoot somebody down and eject. And frankly, From what I've heard and seen, not just in Hollywood, (laughs) I don't think I really wanted to do either one of those because there's no for sure outcome for either. I mean, some people are bothered by the fact that they maybe extinguished another life, even though it's in the profession of arms. That can still bother people. And so when you eject, it's by no means, although it is in the movie, uh, seems to be fine for everybody, but it's it's no sure thing that you're going to come out of that without some life altering injury. And so I did everything I wanted to do in the airplane. What I miss the most is the camaraderie and the sense of being in a ready room. Although they showed a lot of friction in this movie in the ready room, but in real life, the ready room is the best group of people I think I I could ever ask to be around. I mean, we, we bust each other's chops a lot. But we also have each other's backs and we have a lot of fun. And when you work hard together, you play hard together. And there's just nothing like it. And I fly for an airline now. And if we are on a layover, we may or may not, the captain and I, go get a refreshment. But it's not anything like when we pulled into port in Singapore or Kuala Lumpur and partied our brains out. So I miss that. But I'm also older now, so I don't know how much I could keep that up anyway.
0: Well, Dello, it's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. Just a fascinating account. And, and, and uh, I, I agree with you about the movie. I, I really enjoyed it. And I, I think they did a great job. So I'm sure everyone who's listening to this has, has already seen it. But, uh, and if they haven't, they, uh, they probably know the story now anyway. But uh, no, just thank you so much. It's a real honor to speak to you. And, uh, and, and hopefully we'll get you back again on the podcast in the future. But if, if you're listening to this um, and you like what Jello had to say, then definitely check out the Fighter Pilot podcast which I've been listening to lately. It's just a a hell of a ride. So uh, thanks so much for your
1: time, Jella. Thank you for having me, Matt. I really enjoy your show.
0: Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and visit livinghistorytv.com for more great history content.
1: Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands.